Um, who knows what the uh, <laughs> the deal was with that? We got like a oh. not a takedown, but a, a nudge saying, "Hey, please uh, don't use this song to talk to." But yeah, um, we should be good now. By who? It's totally fair use, by the way. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll deal with it in a little bit. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, hey, people, welcome to the crowd. Yo. He's got that feedback. Hey, um, D-Bug, you need to turn your mic down. You're echoing everybody. No, this is badass. I like this. <laughs> Everybody's got some really deep voices. I got your cat. Sweet. So, hey, everybody, welcome to Thug Crowd. Thanks for joining us today. Um, we are going to be live with our pal Esquiring, a.k.a. Um, Twitter's lawyer, as or yeah, is that what uh, Readme called him? Infos <laughs> um, <clears throat> like lawyer. Uh, he's going to be talking about um, new laws, uh, current cases, and just what they kind of mean for the hacker, hacker community in general. So uh, it's be really cool, and we we're you know able to do a lot of uh, questions. So if you have anything that you wanted to hypothetically ask about your hypothetical someone who isn't you, you totally can today. Um, so yeah, um, but. Now that we're here at the top of the... Oh, hey, Esquiring. Hi. Hey. Let me... Uh, on, what up? Um, uh, one second. Got tea cookers back in there? It says we got tea. Oh, um, so yeah. So we are uh, doing a badge giveaway today. And the address for the badge giveaway is well so it's actually i'll probably the end. this is a puzzle that we're doing and the puzzle is um just if you solve it you're the first person to solve it and find the correct thing that you need to um that says what to do um all the instructions are included in the puzzle um but yeah so everybody here i'll put it in the chat for both channels and Let's see if I can actually do that, because I think that they might not let me on YouTube. We'll see. So, <clears throat> yeah, okay, there we go. We're good. So, yeah, this is the puzzle. Um, first person to finish it, um, yeah, just let us know. You'll, you'll see when you, when you solve it. Um, so we'll give the whole, um, the whole stream to do that. And let me see if I can pull up a picture real quick of it, because we – this is – we had talked to um, Bond before about the uh, the called. Oh, where did it, where did it go? Um, hmm. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I do not have a picture of the uh, badge right now, but I'm gonna try to pull it up on stream. So if someone wants to say something. Yeah, uh, it's on the Thug Crowd. Right. Hold on. I'm trying to say this. I don't want to take large. It's uh, not yet. N0TY3P on Twitter. She has a bunch of pictures of it. Yeah, it is. Here we go. Oh, my God. This is taking up the entire screen. <laughs> we're doing it live. Yep. <laughs> All right. So this here, this is what we're our you will win if you uh, solve the puzzle. 
and it is a DEFCON badge that we are going to give away at DEFCON. And um, it is a, what's it called? Like if you, it's an IoT lab. Uh, there's a bunch of different like inputs and outputs on it. It's all handmade, and this is a prototype one that she has now. Um, they're handmade, like BGA soldered, insanity. Um, it's a really cool circular OLED um, screen, and um, there's like, a rechargeable thing on the back for it. And there's a bunch of different inputs and outputs. It's really, really awesome. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm excited to see what it actually looks like. But she will be releasing them at DefCon, so we will have. The badge is at DEF CON, and if you are not, if you win the contest and you are not um, available to be at DEF CON, we can figure out a way to send it to you. Uh, but yeah, so we're really excited about this. And yeah, good stuff. Yeah, one so, by one pixel right now. What? The uh, badge image is a one by one pixel at the moment. What do you mean? It's. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's on the stream though. On the oh, 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 yeah. So that badge.gif, That's that's the puzzle. So you grab that um, URL and go hack away. Just hack him, bro. Figure All it out. Good. All I can say is uh, having a quick look. There's there's some nice uh, garden paths. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <we're>, yeah. <laughs> So, what were you going to say, um, Dan? Uh, nothing. No. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, let's get into the news that we got. So, there's some interesting things that we've seen this week. Um, one of them I didn't actually mention, which, MG, if you want to talk about later, um, that'd be awesome. Um, and I'll post the show notes as well so that everybody who's at home can follow along. Um, boom. Cool. All right, so the first thing we have here is the NetSpectre attack, which is, um, we saw this recently, and I was reading the white paper about it, and it was interesting, but it's not as practical as you would think it would be, but it's still really cool. Um, basically, it's doing a Spectre um, attack uh, on the network drivers, and it's doing speculative ex execution, and um, yeah, it has a really, really slow exfiltration speed, though. It's like 15 bits per hour. So you not even a full byte of data that can be like ex, like taken away from this. Um, yeah, this is just really it's the the actual um, white paper itself in the show notes um, or in the article in the show notes is um, pretty dense. And so I was reading through it. I haven't read through all of it, and I will read through more of it again in the future. But as my brief skim saw, what it's basically trying to do is do what other Spectre attacks have done, but just over the internet by using packets um, to actually do this. Nice. Oh, and sorry, my, my mouth is are very loud. Sorry. Um, wow. Um, <clears throat> I will try to figure out where I mean, it It's pretty crazy, like the, the net specter thing, but um, I, like if you have a look at the exfiltration speeds, it's uh, like 60 bits an hour. Oh wait, 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 sixty is like the the new hotness. Fifteen is the original one. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so fifteen bits an hour on speculative execution. So I mean, targeting like specifically targeting like one thing that you want out of memory is like I don't know. It doesn't seem very feasible. Yeah. It's cool, but it's really 
interesting to like to to do it right like in a lab setting but all these attacks that aren't practical i kind of lose a little bit of interest in them when they're not at all practical like 15 bits per per minute was it per hour (laughs) per hour hour (laughs) crazy what is it for I, like if I was if I had like unlimited resources and like I needed something really badly like and I was you know a whole nation state that I could just you know throw really? shit at like yeah. th- maybe you know but I mean the only have, thing I could think it would be useful for is like extracting a ca.com like from Ver or something right if you but you wouldn't do it as an indie like I mean who has this fucking time like, I mean you need to be <laughs> exactly. Like I don't have I don't have the time. Like if if I if there's like a forty ninety six bit key that I need out of memory, how many hours is that? I wonder if it's faster if you run it locally, like if you hit your own interface. Hmm. I don't think so. I think it's a straight up. That's yeah. Hey, uh, so MJ's had to run away real quick. There's uh, you you might want to yeah, you have a look in that for the picture. Of. Warning, so grish. What's that from? Oh, right now, apparently. Well, I mean, the show's not that bad, dude. <laughs> I think we're doing good. <laughs> oh, I'm here. I'm just cleaning up. <laughs> that was a cutting joke. Sorry. <laughs> uh, hopefully, everything's good though. Yeah, send a little Windex over to uh, MG, cleaning him up. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. I don't know if Windex will fix that. Holy. Yeah, that's great. Windex will fix anything. Where hardware pitfalls. Cool. So, uh. Yeah, the next Spectre thing is cool. It's just, I don't know. It's not practical. I'm just gonna. I'll I'll be the jerk. It's not practical. It's bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, I, I agree. It's just not going to do anything for anybody. <laughs> There's been similar attack, like, not similar, but, like, similar speed attacks where people were, like, uh, exfiltrating, th- uh, exfiltrating through, like, flashing LEDs on mm. switches and shit like that. And, it's, again, it's, like, you, you, like it's a door. high-speed it's a door. cameras. Yeah, it's yeah. A, like, a using a high-speed camera at a switch for, like, how long? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. There was the one the other day about, we covered about using like the battery status to exfiltrate data like via a website from a phone. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. And I think that was for keylogging, right? Something like that. Yeah, it was for stuff. But the uh the speed is very similar. It's just like it's it's such a it's either it, it was developed and used for a really specific use case or it was developed in a lab where some people um, used ingenuity and kind of their artistic side to develop something really cool. But real world yeah. practice is just, it's not going to be useful. What was that? Uh, There's another one as well where they were using like the, they were heating up uh, like a cap, no, they're heating up some component on, and then using like a thermal camera inside something for exfiltration. <laughs> like if you can, if you can point, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but if you can, if you can like extract that data with a thermal camera, like point it at a device, lol. Like, how long is it going to take? Don't you want to just steal the whole device? You're right. right. 
yeah, your 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 thermal gun is going to be detected. <laughs> People are going to start asking questions about why this thermal gun is hanging ceiling for the last three weeks. <laughs> so um, there's another story here that is a little more practical and more real. Um, in that there is Snoopware that has been installed on 11 million plus iOS, Android, Chrome, and Firefox uh, for those different kinds of users. Um, it's basically some company called Big Star Labs um, had bought out something um, or bought out a bunch of, uh, or they had, somebody had acquired um, on this company and then that company, they, they injected stuff into it. So it's just another example of like sort of just people hack like hijacking um, older repos and older applications people use and just uh, installing weird sort of spyware on it. Yeah, and if you have a look at the names of some of the uh, extensions like AdBlock Prime, like it's similar to the popular AdBlock Plus, which I think uh, we we push UBlock Origin here. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what we tell people to use and. Uh, like some of the mobile apps, like Speed Booster, like Clean Droid. Like I don't know who. My favorite uh, is Poper Blocker. <laughs> Wait, what's it called? Oh, Poper Blocker. Poper Blocker. Yeah, privacy policy. The privacy policy through a Chrome extension that is out of your like view. Nice. Yeah, it's really funny that like I mean, there's it's a lot of it's just like why did you download it? But at the same time. I don't know. They rely on people to download just weird stuff, um, and the companies that are, that run these and they run the, like they just inject their own ads. They have their own ad networks that run their own code on your own on your own machines. And who knows who what happens? They get sold. They get bought. They get liquidated because they ran out of money because they spent it all. Um, so yeah, it's just always something to look out for. Um, is the extensions and the apps that you use and pay attention to mergers and things like that if you hear about them because they might affect you. I feel like some of these numbers might be skewed though because it's it, it's giving you like uh, how many installs from the app store. So I mean, you know, 1.4 million people uh, or like 5 million people with Speed Booster, that might have been like when they had like two phones ago, you know. Yeah, yeah. Especially with like the older apps, but I mean, I guess with if you have five million installs, you show up higher rated on the app store, regardless. Absolutely. Where are these companies for sale, by the way? Can I just can I just buy one? <laughs> a failing app company. <laughs> I'll give you thirty bucks to take the lot. I mean, that's got to be happening. To them and say, hey, I'll give you this much. Just um, let me be you. Like, yeah, whatever. Probably made by. A single dude. Like, well, that's more money than I was making off of this. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. Just something to look out for. Not the biggest thing in the world, but it's something. Um, so yeah, the other one here. Did you see the IBM fixes the flaw that lets hackers replace its serverless code with their own? <laughs> um, this is this just was cool. Like, yeah. did you guys actually look at the 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 Git diffs for this bug? I did not. Uh, so it wasn't very complicated. Like the the fix wasn't a whole great deal, but there's basically like two routes in Apache Whisk, uh, Open Whisk, whatever it's called. Like one of them was um, init, and one of them was the run. And so like when you init, that's when you push your server, like your serverless code, and when you run, that's when you um 
uh, that function executes. And uh, you could re-init, um, so you could init and then you could init again. And so by using um, like a, a payload that wasn't all that complex, you could like uh, modify the running code and away you go. And then when you run run, it runs whatever the hell you want. So all they did was made it so that there was like is now a reinitialization, like a reinitialization, like false or whatever the flag. So by default, you can't do it. Um, but it was pretty cool. Like definitely just replacing. So like if you uh, if you wanted to mine Monero or some shit, you know, you just push it to a bunch of find someone that's a serverless farm and reinitialize everything. Yeah. I mean, it's a sort of new technology that gets rolled out for like super high speed applications and things. It's interesting to see the sort of new security risks that need to be managed through this sort of thing. Yeah. And looking at the code, like when you look at it, it all makes sense to the, the initial code before the fix, like, you know, initialize and then run. Like it's not, there's not like not a lot to it, but um, yeah, crafting that payload obviously like really switched the game up. Um, and I was interested to see, what other like where else in in serverless land we uh we see this kind this thing like so this was the apparently the first publicly disclosed serverless bug which i'm not sure if i believe where, where else would you expect to find it i'm uh, not too familiar with serverless that uh, uh, i guess like amazon have an offering um like this oh, okay. so, like, so like cloud cloud type providers they have sort of all different, uh, like uh, Amazon's uh, Lambda, I guess. You run Lambda functions out of S3 buckets and shit, you know. Huh. So I wonder, yeah, I guess that would apply to other, like, large corporations, their own internal kind of server farms, maybe, things like that. Yeah, and I think the the reason this one like got a couple of CVEs because it's uh you know the Apache Foundation and and uh, the the code is on GitHub right like the actual OpenWhisk server code so oh. to set up your serverless instance so that that's if you follow those CVEs um in the article from the show notes you'll see like the exact diffs yeah interesting so this definitely looks like an example of uh, something that was uncovered likely due to open source yeah maybe yeah it's uh it's it's static analysis is probably i don't know i would guess yeah the way it was discovered hmm. that's cool it, it's it's interesting because there's a lot of places and a lot of people that would keep this and not really say anything about it so when they do these are good stuff these are good things yeah, it was unlo- it was uh, discovered. Well, apparently, like so, that it was disclosed by a Israeli security company, and uh, they're a serverless security company, which I didn't even know there was like that niche serverless security companies. But yeah. I guess we we live in the future. <laughs> it is the future, guys. Um, so yeah, the next next uh, story that we have here is really funny, uh, and also not funny at all. Um, this is Lifelock. LifeLock bug that has now exposed millions of customer email addresses. Um, and this is interesting. It's really just silly the way that this guy found it. It was through the unsubscribe button. He found the user like token or the customer record, uh, the subscriber key is what it was called. And um, they was able to like randomly fuzz it and, or no, no, no. 
it was uh, sequential. Sorry, it wasn't it wasn't random fuzzing. It was incrementing the uh, yeah. subscribers and grabbing that information from from it. That's just classic Sounds bugs. And is iteration, like you said. But one of the things that at least, and I'm sure a bunch of other tools does, is it'll specifically avoid logout and some other uh, pages that'll end your session. So if you're doing active scanning, specifically, like I said, uh, out pages, and it won't it won't do things to invalidate your session. So I'm guessing the um, this could have fallen into that kind of category of it's been missed because all these tools and all these uh, all these things don't hit it by default. Yeah. Off base on it though. Well, looking at it like this, just the subdomain like cloud.email.lifelock, like, uh, and the the way that you know it's just providing a get key. I imagine this is, um, yeah, it's the the unsubscribe feature, right? So you get email, you don't know what it is, you don't know why you're on a list. Like, how, how often does it happen that you're like on this mailing list and you don't know why? So you hit the unsubscribe and you don't have to log in because you've got some token or whatever. And in this case, their token was you know probably like the Auto increment primary key like ID field <laughs> of the <laughs> mailing list. So right. I mean, that, this is a shitty design, really. So you gotta just assume everything else inside their organization is shitty design as well. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think like this could be one of those things where the marketing team were all about that, and they wanted this to work. Like you know, they wanted this mailing list to get their marketing out. And then the the security team probably, you know, might be working on their products. And there was like a, you know, there's, there's off, I've seen in corporations yeah. a bunch of times like that, the marketing yeah. team they take control of like a WordPress blog. Yeah, you're right. Marketing team does win out a lot. But does LifeLock actually produce any security products, or are they just doing essentially insurance? It's like reputation management sort of thing, but not like typical thing. It's just basically all the different tools that you would use to like secure your account or your, your information if it's found somewhere. Um, yeah. I mean, I've never really played too much with LifeLock service, yeah, but they kind of just do identity theft protection. So it's like some sort of insurance. I remember, I remember the, the CEO got his stuff jacked a few times though. Oh yeah. Cause he, he put his uh, social security number on that yeah, billboard. Right, right. And then he got his identity stolen like 14 times or something like that. Something absurd. Where, I mean, in a, where, yeah. a company like that, though, you'd ex- Yeah, they've got to have like somebody in there who's hacked a computer one time, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you would at least expect them to put like a lot of fraud protection around the CEOs. Uh, they didn't. Because he, I know there was at least a few payday loans that they got in Texas. Like there were some really kind of funny places that people were able to, ex- like, use his identity and and get a couple grand. It wasn't anything like yeah. huge, huge, but it was like six six grand here and there. Um, and it was because he was being a friggin' idiot, putting his social on every. Uh, roaming billboards on those trucks. I definitely remember those days, and my god, I think it's been like a decade. Yeah, I remember those commercials. Yeah. Yeah, it's... 
<sighs> it's a long time ago. I remember them. They, they were forever ago, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I suddenly felt old halfway through the sentence. <laughs> Same. <laughs> oh, man. So, but yeah. Lifelock exposing it, I think, is uh, peak irony. And, uh, yeah. Irony. There's one that we don't have on the... Uh, on the show notes, I don't think that before we go to the next one. Oh wait, no wait, dude, it's at the bottom. Never mind, I'll shut up. Oh, are you talking about? What I think you're talking about. All right, we'll go out of order. The bit fee thing—it's unhackable, and nobody can hack it. Don't even. <laughs> yeah, try it. we can uh, discuss that if you want. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I just put that in the show notes as just the ongoing bit fee saga because it's been really entertaining the past couple of days. Um, to just. Yeah. Is it, just it's i don't want to give a background about what actually happened and what it means yeah I'll, I, I can give it a quick thing it's uh it's mcafee pimping what in my is a total bullshit scam thing that apparently used to be some kind of juicer android phone that's now been repurposed to to serve shit coins or something like that I don't really know. It's yeah, it's, it's, it's um, garbage. MediaTek chipset phone, like fifty dollar phone, basically with the SIM removed and the fucking camera removed. I mean, you can see if you look at the board, it had like those uh, holes for the SIM card. There's holes for the, the fucking. They, they removed camera. thirty pieces from it though. Like they didn't even just remove the foam pieces that you would think. Okay, maybe we should remove this. They removed steps that made uh the treasure thing which is uh hardware is based on i believe they removed pieces uh, of that that are secure from it so it's less wait, secure uh, than that. you can you just uh there's a picture of it um opened up on the back if you want to put that on the stream um so like but if you look at this thing right there's it's some key giveaways that tell you that it's a shit piece of hardware one of the things here is that the SIM slots are those, like, there's two, right? Now, how often do you find a phone that has two SIM slots? Like, and then, like, if you have a look at it as well, there's a whole bunch of pads that are, like, also, like, test pads that are just, like, exposed, right? Dude. Um, so it's kind of like, you, you look at this thing and you compare it to, like, the Trezors. And, like, Bitfee have tweeted Trezors and, and Legendands and shit like the in like internals and it's kind of like it doesn't even fucking compare <laughs> but i want to call mcafee on when uh they were saying the iphone couldn't uh encryption couldn't be broken and mcafee went out like the fbi or whatever was saying that and uh, mcafee went on tv and he was saying oh, right. all you need to do is like hacking up to hack this iphone to get the data out is you need a hardware engineer you need a software engineer you can do it it can be done the FBI full of mm. shit, whatever. And then he comes out and says that this thing can't be hacked. <laughs> like, yeah. come on, bro. You know he, the difference. Straight so, up, yeah. He, he doubled down on that that way of thinking. Uh, if it has memory and if it has a CPU, it can be hacked. And he was talking about a competitor. And he was like, he was shitting on a competitor recently. Like in the past day or two. And I retweeted it. Uh, gleefully out of context because fuck him. Um, but I mean, he was proving his own point yet again that it's it is hackable. It it definitely is in some way. Worst case, if somebody gains control over the manufacturing process, it's game over. 
but it looks like it's even way worse than that. Well, it also makes calls to like Baidu.com. Yeah, no. so, I, I was going to mention. Yeah, I don't think it was Baidu, but there was some like China-based app store. Yeah, QQ that it's funding home to. Yep, yep. So it's yeah, based it, off it, a Trezor? Is that what? You... No, it's based uh, yeah. off just an Android phone. But so, the... shout out to Cyber Gibbons. Definitely follow him on Twitter for this whole saga. He's like just ripping it apart, and the Bitfy people are losing their minds over talking to him. It's it's really kind of funny watching the back and forth. What's the that retweet you're talking about? What's the FCC ID of your products? That was one of them, but no, yeah. he uh, McAfee actually said something like. If it has memory and blah, it, it, he wrote, he started out by saying it is hackable. But again, it was out of context. He wasn't talking about his thing, but in essence, it was just all the whole thing is uh, entertaining any way you look at it. I will it's say, though, the McAfee of the McAfee. Yeah, he's like, he's a master of guerrilla marketing, though, because that's all everybody's been talking about for the last two days. Yeah. Also, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll pay you $100,000. And their attack, like, or specific yeah. attacks, like, super, super narrow. And Did you see, though, stick. they opened it up to infrastructure for 250000 Yeah, we'll see how they write the way around it. Yeah, um, I don't think people are going to wait. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what would be really interesting? If, like, McAfee has, like, some massive stake in, like, Trezor or, like, Ledger or something, like... <laughs> I think there's something more to it too, though. I really do. I think, I think there's this is this seems too insane, even for McAfee. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, he's on their board. Is he on Juicero's board? Because I the or no shit was linked to some kind of juicer website. Oh, I don't some craziness going on there. This whole thing is really amazing. Sorry, I had to step away for a second. Um, but I just I really like that there's people literally calling out Cyber Gibbons and calling him a nerd and call and saying like don't you have better things to do with your time and stuff like just like calling him <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah people are calling like a paid chill and this kind of stuff. And it's just yeah, crazy. yeah. They were literally like just like, like questioning. Don't even have one out. Like, yeah. Um I just I love the one where someone said you're a nerd and then as Thug Crowd I tweeted out like, Yeah, you're a nerd, like go uh play League of Legends and write slash fic. And like people like retweeted it that like we're like arguing with him. It's just like really weird. It's like it's like petty now, even though he's already done as much as he could to like tear it apart, explain exactly what it does. People are now just resorting to like, well, you're just a dweeb. Like, what do you know? I, I can think of worse like bad security solutions than uh, an army of bots that just publicly shame someone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's an interesting. I don't know what the end game is with it. I do. I I did see things, and it it kind of it kind of even goes into some of the stuff that that we should get into at some point, um, legal wise. Uh, and obviously, anything I'm sure Fred, you have said, but uh, you know, this is an actual legal advice. This is just a conversation that happens to be with my. Uh, um, and we definitely get into that more of that um, later on. Um, I mean, we actually we don't have that many show notes for today. Well, I did want MG if he had a chance to, to talk about the um, ghost gun stuff. Um, oh yeah, right, right. But uh, yeah, yeah. The, last, the last one that I had though before we can get into that is just 
the uh, Chinese hackers who are sending malware via snail mail. Um, it's really funny. Basically, there's these really small um, CDs that they're sending out, the really tiny ones. Um, they send this weird message out, and then they just it, it comes with like a, a CD, and it has just a bunch of malicious Word docs in it. It's just so weird that they would just send out the sketchiest thing ever. And this is just uh, can't I just want to like modern day laptops that run those micro CDs. Yeah, most of them can if you're just having to off a pop up drive. If you've owned a MacBook in the last five years, you don't have a CD drive anyway. I don't even have, I don't, I, I'm not even sure where I'd put the fucking thing. Like, why aren't they sending out USB sticks? Yeah, so the small, much. tiny CDs. Like, the C, like <laughs> literally, like you, the ones the, that fit into the inner part of your CD. Yeah, yeah, literally, like the small <laughs> CDs ever. The, the GameCube discs. Literally. It works on GameCube only. Yeah. <laughs> GameCube malware. I mean, yeah. Like, so, there's a bit, like, USB, like, storage is so cheap in China. They manufacture that shit, too. Like, they couldn't be, they couldn't have had, like, that much price difference. Like, was there a couple of cents, like, points of cents per item to send out when you would get, like, a way larger attack surface with USB? Well, yeah, we're training people not to plug in weird USB sticks now. No one told them about CDs. <laughs> weird, tiny, obsolete CDs that they can't even play. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, like, most modern day, like, even CD, like, CD drives modern day don't even work with those or something. I remember somebody on Twitter bought one and was like, I'll just throw this in my CD play like player, and it just didn't work because they just don't read them correctly. Yeah, it's definitely just a really bizarre way to do it, and they're trying to target apparently, um, like state officials in government. Yeah, it's just it seems like the most haphazard way to do anything. Um, but it's just, awesome. I mean, it was fun. It's funny because if you go back in time, when uh, what was it when Hack Five had the what, the switchblade that was uh, USB CD ROM that was a USB stick. Oh wow! Yeah, I remember. Yeah, like that—that's that was like the end of the. I guess that was like the end of the begin, like the beginning of the end of that era, right? Of like uh, auto-run CDs and shit. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't remember, that was a uh, uh, Windows XP would auto-play any uh, file that said auto-run.ini on an external drive, and the SanDisk USB came with a partition that could emulate a CD drive and you could put an ISO in that CD drive with an autoplay.ini file that would then point to a partition of the USB and automatically execute a file that you had there. Yes. <laughs> that was one of the exploits in Stuxnet. Fun times. I mean, if they're targeting somebody specific and they know that they somehow have this tiny CD-ROM drive, you know, it's a great thing. But I, yeah, I don't know. Very, very specific, obscure attack vector if they're trying to leverage. But cool. And well, actually, you know, now now that uh, read me mentioned that uh, the one place that CD-ROMs are still heavily used is a uh, structure like power grid stuff it's because it's read-only. Um, yeah. So CD-ROMs burn a CD-ROM. You trust that that's good enough to cross the air gap. Uh, 
why you would place some promotional stuff in your fucking uh, grid equipment. I don't know, but we're 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 reaching. <laughs> wait, wait. You know where this actually worked in uh, a recent-ish type uh, fiction fictional places uh, in Mr. Robot season one. Uh, if you recall, Cisco was giving out his uh, mixtape on the corner. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gangsta! But nobody probably listened to his <laughs> stupid fucking mixtape no, because it was a CD. <laughs> the guy did the, the, in, the, in the story. No spoilers if you haven't seen it, but like, yeah, the, the boyfriend of the, yeah, he, he took the mixtape. Yeah, he should upgrade his laptop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he he also worked at the security. Did he work at the security company? I can't remember. He probably yeah. did. Yeah, but that's like <laughs> he worked at the all safe place. He was yeah. a <laughs> He clearly did it. Oh <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Just to put it up again here. Win this bad solve our puzzle. Everybody who is doing this and uh, PMing, asking questions about what to do. Um. Look at what type of file it is and figure yeah. out. What it can do, what its capabilities are, um, what its purposes, and what the the file specifically just being thugcrowd.com forward slash badge.gif. Yep. So you go there, figure out what the file's doing, what it wants you to do, what information it gives you, and go from there. Um, It's not that particularly challenging, uh, but it's. No, no, we're not going to type the URL. No. Sorry, I'm talking. <laughs> Somebody already put it on the, on the chat. He's saying, "Type the URL, please." No, it's on the screen and it's in the chat and it's in your ears. Um, <laughs> pseudo type URL, please. <laughs> um, yeah. So no. Um, yeah, I know that there's a bunch of people now doing this, so I'm glad. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to give any more hints than just look at the file, figure out what it's doing, and what it wants you, what information it wants to give you. And so, uh, who, where is the, um, or is that part of the challenge, uh, where to actually send the answer to? Uh, oh, it's, it's it's in. The, so once you once you figure it out, once you get what you what the file, once you unlock everything, um, the file will tell you what to do. Everything's clear. Is what Everything's very clear. Yeah. So you'll know when you when you figure it out, you will know and it'll tell you what to do and it'll alert us. And so. a, per, a first come, first serve. So yep. get on it. Get, get on it. This this badge is worth quite a bit of money. It's handmade prototype and it's amazing. It's gonna be a really awesome um IoT and embedded development platform um to play around with and something that's just amazing. We we heard from Bon and uh, her husband about how they made it and it's painstaking it's like perfect and amazing so I'm, I'm really excited to see it in person and i'm really yeah, excited yeah. to give it away to whoever solves this puzzle we do have another one and if uh we'll, we'll try to get another puzzle going um for next week hopefully um before defcon or some other sort of challenge and um be able to get somebody else to get another bad as well so yeah and that might also include like special so subscribe to uh, Twitch and YouTube. Cause yes, never please, know. everybody who is here, subscribe to our, our YouTube. Because if we get 100 subscribers on YouTube, we can have a custom uh, uh, URL, which is really weird that we can't have it. Well, I mean, it's kind of good because it means that you're a legit channel and not just squatting on names. But, yeah, we want to get some uh, custom URLs going. So We want to squat some some awesome domains as well. Yeah, our own. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so MG, do you want to uh, touch on a bit what the, happened today? And um, yeah, sure. Yeah, how about uh, finger? <laughs> oh, they're just prying open some electronics. Um, <laughs> did that go up on the screen? The uh, stream? No. Okay, no, so. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Um, okay, yeah. So the news last uh, week or so. Um, 3D printed guns after a five year battle, the uh, DOJ backed down and decided to settle with Defense Distributed. The settlement basically said, um, We're going to pay you back like 40 grand worth of your legal fees. We're going to, well, we're going to rewrite ITAR so that um, effectively civilian weaponry is covered under their jurisdiction. Um, which basically means they can now put these files up on the internet like almost everybody else is currently doing, but they've been the only ones targeted by the government. Uh, they can put them up there, and uh, they are no longer in violation of the federal uh, export of firearms laws. Um, of course, that wasn't the end of the battle. Um, lots of politicians and everybody's freaking out. They're like, holy crap, we're going to have undetectable firearms on planes, and you know the whole battle... The, the, the freak out that happened five years ago, uh, it's all back again. So um, let's see what happened. Uh, there was somebody tried to, to basically get um, there, there's been multiple attempts here. The, the latest is uh, I think it's 21 different state attorney generals are effectively trying to prevent this from occurring. Um, they, they want to have a trial in September. Some, some are suing him directly. Some are saying that if you, uh, transmit these files into our state, uh, then we will sue you. Uh, it's kind of a really interesting thing at the foundation of freedom of speech. Like these are files. Uh, we've historically concluded that code is speech. Uh, it's very similar kind of the crypto wars of the nineties. But now we actually have individual states kind of creating these weird legal blockades around data, much in the way you'd kind of expect, say, China to do it. Uh, really weird. Um, of course, the fact that this delves uh, into firearms means there's a lot of weird emotions that uh, a lot of people kind of are okay with it when otherwise they wouldn't be. So a uh, really weird mix. Uh, as of a couple hours ago, I think it was washing... There was, uh, I think it was a Washington uh, judge uh, created a federal injunction. Um, basically, even though they don't have authority nationwide, they can create a block nationwide. So effectively, the, the website hosting these files uh, has been shut down now by, by this, this situation. So there's a lot of really interesting legal situations. I think our, our guest might actually have some input on this and be a little more intelligent than I am. But um, I, I, there's certainly some freedom of speech issues here. There's, um, you know, it may roll up into the Supreme Court. Even the ability for a, um, a local judge to make a, uh, you know, injunction that applies federally is a really weird thing. So I wonder if that also will roll up into a Supreme Court uh, situation where they end up revoking those powers. What's interesting as well is like the site being down, um, like before the show, when we we're talking about this, like from Australia, I'm looking at the Cloudflare mirror because the upstream is <laughs> giving a 502, but I can still browse everything. Um, I didn't want to download the files because I mean, our gun laws are very different here and 
Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Defcon's next week, so I didn't want to like rock you know the TSA to be like, yo, stop right there, <laughs> illegal scum. Um, nice. but uh, I did I did click the link, and you cannot from the Cloudflare mirror. The actual files are not mirrored. Yep. The so, um, it was there was three. I think it was New Jersey, Los Angeles, and there was a, another one where the the locations were blocked at an IP level. And then they were also uh, dealing with it uh, with all mobile phones because apparently it's harder to geo-block that way. Um, and that was up until this uh, fed- federal, um, or sorry, the nationwide takedown uh, was issued. So not quite sure what the next steps are for them, but uh, very interesting. So what was what's the, name what's, of the-, what's the uh, tech- like, technically, how are they censoring this? Is this a DNS thing or is it... Cloudflare having to block it. Um, How is this actually happening? So yeah, uh, well, the whole site's just down because it's it's nationwide. But back when, uh, as of uh, this rapidly unfolded across the week, so there were a couple of days in which they had to preemptively block uh, these these locations, and I believe it was IP based. Now this was Defense Distributed doing it because they didn't want to deal with the you know fallout of getting a lawsuit but they're they're preemptively also suing every one of these uh these entities that are trying to censor their speech too so it's, it's really messy there's a lot going on i'd like to say that, like the the guy the ceo what's his name Co- cody wilson yeah cody um, wilson yeah cody wilson like he's very cocky about this whole thing and, <laughs> the, and like he like he's swinging that dick like he's letting them know. Yep. Um, that is not be a problem either. That'll never be a problem for him. <laughs> no, that's yeah. that's absolutely been mm. his his mo. He he um I I view him as someone kind of within the the realm of you know crypto anarchists and even the you know the cypherpunk movement. He takes a very different approach though. A lot of us will use decentralized means to kind of undermine the authority and the, the laws, but he has taken the direct approach he very visible he puts a name directly behind it there's no anonymity and uh he's using the government almost against itself he's kind of getting it to attack itself in a lot of interesting legal ways um also i'd just like to point out classic eric s raymond endorsed the organization for their efforts lol (laughs) nice Whoa, hey, yep. RQU. RQU, just uh, hold on one second. Ba-ba-da-bum. You did it, Bub. That was fast. Wow. Um, RQU, already a winner. RQU has won. That was amazing. <laughs> wow, you did it in uh, 48 minutes or so. Sick. So, uh, RQU45 uh, on Twitter has. Uh, has won the challenge, so he will be getting. Uh, that was cool. I'm like, I, I just looked, I sat down, I looked at the at the thing and just saw it. It was already solved. I was like, what? That was nice. cool. Should we? Uh, should we do two? Um, sure. Yeah, we have two of them, don't we? Okay, let's do two. Well, right. the thing is though, that if we do two, then the the, the screenshots are already out. Yeah, you have to come up with a new challenge. So, yeah, we, we can't do two actually because we I have to come up with a new challenge, which is fine. We have we have them. New challenge. I mean, we could maybe for Sunday, maybe. Yeah, I'll, I'll we'll do that. We got many tricks up our sleeves. 
<laughs> that was cool though. Congrats thanks, to um, thanks to RTU. Congrats. congrats. Yeah. Uh, take that down. Hmm? No, don't take it down. Uh, uh, let's just pretend nobody did it, so everybody keeps trying. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's awesome. Yeah, dude. Arky's the shit. He knows his stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that was it had a lot, it has a lot of uh, misdirection. So. Yeah, man. Um. Yeah, no, we'll yeah, we'll do something for Sunday. Um, sorry, I caught me by surprise a little bit, so <laughs> our cue. Yeah, right. Uh, that's awesome. Bro. That's great. Hell yeah. So, um, do you want to get into or Esquiring? Do you want to get into um your discussion now? Sure. Yeah, I can get that started. All right. Awesome. So yeah, we invited uh, Esquiring on. He is a attorney. Is it an attorney or a lawyer? Uh, there's like. <laughs> Barely even semantic differences. Uh, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll answer either one. Cool. Uh, well, a legal expert and um, knows a ton about the cybers and isn't um, adult <laughs> uh, and understands the law as well. So he's come on to basically tell us what he knows and thinks about some of the newer laws, current cases, and other things that are relevant. And yeah, so we can kind of just take it away, I guess. If you, if you want to introduce yourself a little bit, that would be cool too. Yeah, sure. Um, let me start with um, the uh, extremely boring disclaimers. Uh, I am not your lawyer. None of this should be taken as legal advice. And uh, these are my views, not those of the firm or any of my clients. Uh, so I, I'm an attorney at Tor Eklund Law, and uh, I've been doing you know, primarily cybercrime cases and other sort of high-tech, mostly litigation-focused stuff for the last uh, four and a half years here. Uh, the short version of the long story is I got into all this uh, from, I don't know, being a techie person and doing crypto stuff since I was, you know, knee high and uh, then was doing some human rights work in uh, conflict zones where I was carrying client data and got real familiar, real familiar with a whole lot of crypto stuff in action real fast. So that's, that's sort of my short background. Um, what should I talk about first? I mean, so you had mentioned a little bit about some newer laws, and I wanted to see if you wanted to touch on that a tiny bit before you start going into more of the current uh, cases and what they mean. If you had any opinions on anything that has come out recently? Yeah, I mean, there have been there have been like one or two big changes in sort of the state of digital privacy. Um, there have been some some major sort of Supreme Court cases that change the way the law's looking right now, and there have been a few bits of legislation. You've got um, the changes to Rule 41, uh, EFF, and I think some others did some big advocacy about that. I think that was about probably about a year ago now. Um, which is, it's a it's a criminal procedure rule that's you know buried deep in the criminal procedure rule book, but it governs basically what can and can't be done by law enforcement when they're searching. And the change I think was targeted at targeted at sort of making, uh, basically at making things like Tor unmasking and de-anonymization yeah. easier. But the way it was worded and in practice meant that, you know, law enforcement has this kind of blanket potential to go into anyone's computer if they think that that's a route to, you know, their endpoint. Um, you so you've got that. That's one one of the major changes that got some publicity. You've got the Cloud Act, which uh, 
think it's pretty safe to say was a direct response to the Microsoft case. I, I don't know how much that got press out, out there, but this was the one where Microsoft had the server that was in Ireland. US law enforcement said, hey, turn over that data. And uh, Microsoft US basically said, well, it's all overseas. You don't, you can't do that this way through the Stored Communications Act. And so the Cloud Act changes that. Um, I don't know if there have been any sort of big test cases on that yet, but the long and short of it is, at least in the letter of it, this removes the territoriality requirement for basic cloud data. Um, and then the other big one that's probably got the most press out of, out of anything is uh, SESTA-FOSTA. And that doesn't change things too much for you know, InfoSec folks. I think it's, you know, I know like a lot of the sex worker community and a lot of people sort of, you know, doing hosting services and things are way more concerned about it. But, you know, it pokes a sort of poorly phrased hole in uh, the Communications Decency Act Safe Harbor, which is, you know, basically given websites of all shapes and sizes uh, pretty strong protection from liabilities since 1996. And so there's been a lot of kind of fear mongering about that as to, you know, what does this mean? How does this affect us? Uh, you know, what is the actual scope of this limitation of immunity from liability? Yeah. So um, as far as these kind of things go, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about newer cyber or cyber laws? I can't think of any better word, but internet laws that are coming out. Because you see a lot of uh, hype and a lot of like flapping about what things mean. And is there anything in particular that you see constantly that you would want to sort of address right off the bat? Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think the biggest issue is there's a lot of these, you know, on one hand, they, they, there's a lot of these, like, on one hand, informative articles, but they tend to leap to conclusions about exactly what this means. Yeah. The reality is, you know, this stuff moves slow. Um, even the people who wrote these laws don't necessarily, you know, probably haven't thought through every single possible way that this could play out on the ground. Um, sesta Foss is a great example where, you know, you've got lawmakers writing stuff based on this concern over child sex trafficking and what have you. And the language of what they write arguably means that, you know, now your email service is on the hook if someone sending nudes on, is sending nudes on it. And you've got a lot of articles out there saying like, oh, the sky is falling. This is what's going to happen. It's terrible. Everyone's liable now. And the reality is that's just not how this, this sort of thing works. You might be liable. There's uncertainty now, but I think I think the big the thing I see most constantly and most consistently with the way that these sort of new technology laws get rolled out and publicized is a lot of leaping to conclusions um, and oftentimes kind of a scary worst case conclusion when it, in reality you know no one really knows how this is going to play out on either side of of the aisle. Yeah. No, I mean that's definitely something that we've seen a lot of, especially when we had. Um, the Georgia ADA on here um, on an earlier episode that we had done when we kind of discussed sort of what it meant for um, security research for the laws that were being passed in Georgia. And it seemed like it was pretty misrepresented um, in certain ways, um, just about what things entail. And so I definitely think that it's, it's really valuable for people to like look up the, the opinions and, and writings of actual legal scholars and people who deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis to actually understand what they mean because it's there's a lot of things that are bad that we should pay attention to and a lot of things that aren't as bad as we think that just sort of wasted everyone's time. 
Absolutely, and, and I think I think the reaction to the Georgia law was, you know, a good example of, you know, everyone kind of freaking out in a way that I don't know. In my opinion, was ultimately productive. I, I read that law, and it, that piece from the face of it did look pretty bad. Yeah, no, and then eventually that that one didn't get passed, though. I don't think uh, it, it got passed, but then it got vetoed. If I'm, okay, if I'm remembering right, uh, and that was, you know, I think just based on the timing of it, it was pretty obviously. Uh, you know, in reaction to the advocacy that, that the security community was doing and was reaching out to, you know, state legislature and the state uh, government. Yeah. So we had a, we had a uh, news article from a few weeks ago that I'm, I'm interested in where a man was pulled over by a street cop, um, like while he was driving and he refused to have his car searched. They found a small amount of weed in his car or whatever. And uh, he had two phones that he refused to unlock. And the judge sentenced him to six months for not unlocking his phones. Like, how, do you have an opinion on how that could possibly, how to, where does that fit in? Uh, I, I've, I know the case you're talking about. I have so many opinions on it. Um, and this is one of those cases where, you know, I, I think it's difficult but important to sort of draw a line between, you know, here's me speaking as a, someone with knowledge in this particular area of the law and here versus here's me speaking as you know an activist or an advocate um as a legal analyst i think the thing that gets most often missed with that particular case is it's not like he you know right off the bat was saying oh, i don't remember if i'm remembering this this correctly it was kind of like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, oops, I forgot thing where he'd been using the phone like just a few minutes ago and then was starting to say, oh, well, no, I don't remember the passcode anymore. And there's, you know, just reading through case filings, I can see how like the judge could think that that was maybe a bad faith statement. And I think like, and, and he's, the, the jail time is coming from that contempt issue. Um, so on one hand, like as a legal analysis, it's not, uh, you know, it's not the best test case for digital privacy because this is, you know, questionable. On the other hand, it's, you know, speaking as an advocate, I think it's ridiculous that that he should be forced to provide that passcode in the first place. You know, there is a Fifth Amendment right not to be witness against yourself. I don't see how anyone should be compelled to give up their passcode to anything. So with the with searching a device though, uh, so similar to searching a car, like you know, um, like I understand you can say no, you can decline the search. That's when the dog comes and sniffs it, and they need reasonable probable cause or whatever to search, right? Yep. yep. Is that the same with a digital device? Like if that if it is, it was it kind of like uh, he had his phone and and the officer had reason to believe that there might be something on the phone or he witnessed something that might be able, or that he just straight out unlock your phone, bro? Uh, so, so post uh, Smith v. Jones and Riley v. California, I think this is, like, it's not a totally settled area of law yet. Uh, so I can't say like a solid totally 100% yes, but it's pretty likely that in that kind of situation, yes, the probable cause requirement would be the same for a phone as it would be for the car itself, if not maybe even more predictive in that kind of situation. Um, whether, hey, we found weed in the car and we saw you using your phone recently is enough? Uh, good question. Probably, probably is under current probable cause law. Uh, it's a pretty low standard. 
as things go. Um, and a lot of it is, you know, comes down to could this, you know, law enforcement officer have sort of a reasonable suspicion that there was something on there that, that they needed to look at. So they might have had probable cause. Um, they would probably need a, you know, doing doing it the right way, they'd probably need a warrant to search that phone. I, I think, if, again, I'm a little fuzzy on the exact details with that particular case. I think there might have also been an issue where like the person sort of made some statements that made it sound like they were okay with them searching the phone. And once you get into consent to search, a lot of those sort of ordinary protections get uh, muddled or sometimes even thrown out the window. And that's a whole whole other sort of can of worms. I guess that's why we uh, why Dan often has his, his statement at the end of the show. <laughs> yeah, uh, shut the fuck up and get a lawyer. <laughs> that, that is the correct advice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what you touched on was uh, the fact that he might have been using the phone. And, and to me, that's especially terrifying to be a, a bar that's set. And I know it's it's case by case, but now when you consider uh, the use of touch ID or, or biometrics, fingerprints to unlock stuff, um, you know, there's protections around it uh, where manufacturers have made it kind of difficult for law enforcement to use it against you um but and in the same time you're, you're really not typing your passcode all that often anymore um your accounts i don't know how many of you have it set up but your fingerprint uh, uh almost never typing your password and so it is really easy to forget your passwords uh even if you have used it in the past day or month or week um and so just just uh, it being a feeling that a judge or somebody has uh, for contempt is kind of a scary thought. Yeah, no, it's definitely scary. And, you know, if I, I think about the times I've appeared before judges and had some sort of technical concept to explain, you know, I, I would not want to be the person standing there in some state criminal court down in Florida trying to explain a password manager and complex, like, multi-special character, three-digit bit length passwords to, right. you know, a low-level state criminal court judge. Yeah, I think uh, just for this, um, the Australians listening, I think uh, if you have to be held for not handing over a crypto password, a crypto key for something, I believe there needs to be supporting evidence that the device already contains uh uh, some other there needs to be evidence that the the device contains evidence for whatever the um like the issue happens to be. So like they can't just assume they need to have proof. But I'm not sure on that. Consult an Australian lawyer. But yeah, we're we're a little different here. Yeah, I mean, in in writing, you've got somewhat similar things here in most cases. But you know, in practice, a lot of the time, a judge will consider that bar satisfied by the police officer saying, yep, we think there's stuff on there that we need. And they sometimes don't inquire much harder than that. A good certain point that a lot of people don't get, at least they don't get until their first brush with law enforcement, is that, yeah, you've read, and you may have read about, oh, well, I have the right to do this and this. But you really don't if a judge in a local township decides that you don't. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the unfortunate reality of a lot of Fourth Amendment law is that it's considered uh, sort of retroactive by the court. So your remedy is to you know, deal with it after the fact and try to get a court to say that they can't use that after they've already got it. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing um, really quick, I, I wanted to go out there before I forget. Um, and it, it's kind of one of the topics that actually led us to uh, to wanting to have you on. And, and again, thanks for, for joining us. Um, and that gets down to uh, the statute of limitations is I think what started all this. And uh, I, I know I've learned a lot over the past uh, few weeks as uh, as we led up to this show. Um, but it, it seems like for CFAA cases specifically, if it's just around the bookends of CFAA, it's around five years. And it's it's five years from the discovery of the crime, though. It's not five years from when the crime actually happened. And uh, I was wondering if that's if that's generally known to be the actual Am I getting it right, or is there is there more to that you can maybe shed some light on? You've got that right. Um, the obviously the tricky question with that is, you know, when was this discovered? And I, I actually I don't know of a CFAA case off the top of my head where that's been litigated, where the courts have like actually had to, to grapple with sort of that knowledge question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the reason it becomes a, a pertinent uh, asterisk that's that's really important is we we have our war story times, right? And we have our beer talk where we feel comfortable uh, talking about things. Oh, it's been so long ago. But if it's up that hasn't previously been known and is now on the radar, that's now on the radar and the clock's start from then so i think that's uh it's an interesting piece that unfortunately might be pretty important i think one of the key things to remember is uh it's a, it's a saying that you know i hope everybody here knows already but no logs no crime but yeah probably <laughs> that's uh that's a pretty good one yeah but uh like you know no logs no crime I'm not saying you should do crimes. I'm not saying you should not leave logs. You should have a perfect same service that collects everything. There's people <laughs> convicted of murder with uh without evidence though. So did we guys did we touch on the um I didn't know when this is actually posted this um twitch this twitch question, but if hypothetically speaking, if a person using an encrypted chat program had a self-destruct feature for all data files and keys associated with it, would that be destruction of evidence if said destruction occurred upon the officers approaching the individual? So um, I was actually I was talking about this exact topic with a friend of mine who does a sort of uh, a lot of like corporate side data preservation law kind of stuff and. There's a few sort of facets to the question. Um, in that particular hypothetical, I think the first thing is, you know, if it's happening like as law enforcement's at the door, um, yeah, it's a pretty easy analogy to, you know, any number of cases you've got where you know folks are destroying physical evidence, knowing that law enforcement's on the way, or you know where they've been tipped off by by somebody or some insider or they're like hearing the knocks on the door, you know, in those situations, 
yeah, there's a pretty good chance that that could support a destruction of evidence charge. Um, even the edge cases where you've got things like, you know, let, let's say you've got it set to wipe everything every, you know, 30 days. Um, even those situations, yeah, legally, if it's a standard policy that's done across the board, no matter what, maybe not, but there's a world of difference between what they can actually get a conviction on and what they can charge. And, you know, I see that all the time with criminal cases in, in cyber crime areas, especially is, you know, there, you, you, you'll, you'll see this sort of strategy where DOJ will charge everything they possibly can. And, you know, the hope is, oh, look, we'll, we'll make it so scary that they'll negotiate a quick plea and everyone, you know, goes away with what they want out of this ish. Um, so, you know, could you be convicted of it in that sort of situation where you've got this sort of standard deletion policy? Maybe. Would you be charged with it if, you know, you're a target for something else anyway in this hypothetical? I would be surprised if that charge didn't get thrown in there with everything else. Yeah, and it's interesting because there's, you know, you see that in like the, you know, movies and things of just like, you know, magneting all the drives, blowing everything up and or, just, you know, the basic everyday function of just uh, like signal with disappearing messages and things. Right. You know, if that it, I feel like the ability for us to do that kind of, you know, ephemeral sort of communication, which in most cases we'll say is definitely not like Snapchat and other uh, disappearing messages programs, but in things like, say, Signal um, or other sort of trusted applications, um, you know, where does the sort of gray area that you're seeing with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think ephemeral messaging, as I've seen it play out in court cases where it's come up, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, the cases where it really helps, you're not going to see it in court because you know, if that evidence isn't there, if it's been deleted, a lot of the time that goes into the charging decision in the first place where, you know, maybe it doesn't get beyond a search or an informal chat with the prosecution. Um, you know, if they really don't have the evidence and don't think they can, you know, imply something criminal from the lack of it, you're not going to even see that in court. Um, on the other hand, with the cases that do get brought where stuff's been destroyed using ephemeral messaging, you know, whether it's the judge or the jury, you know, the, these are smart folks. They know what, it, you know, they, they know what it smells like when something is mysteriously deleted shortly before, before law enforcement shows up. So, you know, it sort of cuts both ways. I mean, would you say then, if that's the case, that uh, if you always use disappearing messages in Signal, to like talk to your mum, right? You want to call your grandma, you want to tell your grandma, happy birthday, I love you. Um, <laughs> and you use Signal for that, then would, wouldn't that, you know, show that that's just a practice you follow rather than you have one contact who is a, happens to be a meth dealer and you only use disappearing messages for that guy? Uh, as a best practice, I'd recommend using PGP to email your grandma happy birthday. But uh, <laughs> in general, yeah, using it across the board is going to look less shady than using it with just with your Beth dealer friends. Nana is is fucking hip though. If she's using PGP, I'm going to put that out there. Watch everybody start uh, messaging their grandma as a cover <laughs> to increase the ratio. What is PGP? No. <laughs> No, no, you, you know that uh, your grandma's using PGP and not Signal because she figured it out when it was new. 
<laughs> she hasn't caught up with this signal magic. Yet. Speaking of catching up with signal magic or any other sort of um, new technologies, um, I wanted to ask you, Esquire, what sort of technical challenges um, you see with people who have to enforce the laws without understanding them? Because we have like really older judges and older people in law enforcement who have to who are facing new kinds of crimes that they don't understand. Like, how does that play out in the real world, and how does it affect people who are caught up in these kind of things? Yeah, um, I've spoken with some folks in law enforcement who are sort of at this intersection uh, where I'm, I'm talking like uh, probably the best example I've got is I, I had a chat a few months ago with someone who's senior in a state law enforcement organization where you know their their field offices are you know little village cop shops and they don't have the technical technical know-how or the resources to be doing like high-tech forensic investigation and a lot of them more and more are finding outside sources whether that's you know private industry contractors or you know bringing people in from uh, like a centralized state capital office or uh, other sort of like specialized investigation units um, so the, the, in some ways, it's you know you've got some examples of folks routing around that lack of technical knowledge by bringing in experts. Um, judges, it's it's really like it's really hard to generalize. Um, you've got some judges. I, I don't know how many of y'all followed the uh, like uh, the Oracle and Google case. Uh, you've got some judges who've like really taken it on taken it on themselves to learn the technology that comes up in cases they've got. Um, you've got other judges who, you know, this is all black magic and, you know, they don't want to hear a word about it beyond what they absolutely need to for the case. And so it, it's really hard to say, like, there are certain, there, there are certainly organizations out there. I, I know there's, uh, I think Berkeley's got, got a clinic that does some trainings for judges, uh, sort of during the quiet seasons. Um, and I think there's other organizations out there doing sort of ongoing ed education programs for judges to sort of do some technical training, but it's almost impossible to generalize, you know, like anything. The ones that want to learn it are going to learn it. The ones who really don't aren't. Uh, so I'm just on that line. top. Sorry, Dan, you go. Go ahead. You had line. Uh, yeah, so um, someone I know is doing a master's degree currently in, in criminology, and um, they were they recently had uh, an area on, on cybercrime. And the lecturer was still talking about the differences between hackers and crackers and all this kind of stuff that we don't talk about anymore that has been clarified much further. Um, if you were a criminology student, I mean, is there any advice you could give out that would be the best way to get up to speed on what is now and how to, like, stay current with what's going on without, like, you know, becoming an infosec professional, I guess? Yeah, I mean that, that that's the funny line. Like, the the academy in, in anything moving as quickly as information security, the academy is always going to lag behind the practice. Um, you know, I I think like anything else, you know, go out there, get involved with, you know, uh, first off, if if you have opportunities to where you're in school for this, you know, get involved in the field, whether that's an internship with you know, a, on whatever side of this whole criminal justice sector you can, whether it's a forensic shop or, 
uh, you know, a defense firm, like find internships, find folks to shadow, you know, get that on the ground experience if you can. And then other than that, you know, I think if you're following the news, if you're, you know, keeping an eye out for, you know, the white papers and scholarly articles that come out, I think those are sort of the best places to keep looking. That's cool. It sounds like it's a good potential place for people to migrate after uh, after kind of getting the 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 technical piece of their their younger years out of the way. Um, and once you start falling farther behind, I'm literally just talking about my settlement, by the way. As I kind of look forward to my career, I see myself keeping up with stuff quite to the detail that I need to myself being competent enough to defend people um in in legal situations do you think that that's some uh track that that might become a trend i i i i think it definitely can be that there's already some folks out there doing sort of uh forensics expert witnessing and stuff like that i think you know it's not like you know cybercrime is not going to going away anytime soon so yeah i think you know, there's certainly going to be a growing demand for people who have sort of the combination of technical skills and testimonial skills to do that well and reliably. Good deal. Actually, I had a uh, a tweet that I had posted in the the um, Discord chat. This is a topic from what we've been talking about, um, but it was from the bit, I think, and. Uh, it's specifically here. Let me let me post it again. I'll post it in general in voiceless voice. Sorry, but I gotta press shift to talk. Anyways, uh, so it's a it's a status update from uh McAfee's adventure where it specifically says infrastructure is now fair game for. Two thousand dollars, is that, in your uh, your personal opinion, not not necessarily legal advice opinion, is that something that has just opened them up to a whole can of worms that they <laughs> don't realize they opened it up? To? Um. So so when they first posted, n- not this infrastructure tweet, but when they first posted about the, uh, it was originally I think a hundred thousand dollar bounty. Uh, I, I was I was giving them some 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 shit about it uh, mm-hmm. and tweeted about that a bit because even if you click through to like the quote unquote details on their website about the quote unquote scope of this bounty, it was really poorly defined and this doesn't yeah. help them in that sense. Uh, it certainly uh, doesn't because it doesn't even say view the site for details. It just literally says now you can attack that infrastructure. <laughs> Yeah, if I were their legal department, I'd be making some phone calls right now because, uh, like, yeah, I, I mean, everybody should use even if they're not. Yeah, like that is just not a good way to phrase what <laughs> I think they wanted to say. Uh, poor them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess <laughs> I don't know if they've yet updated their their details page on what attacking the infrastructure means or limited that scope in any way. Uh, I won't name the company, but I, I did some work for someone a few months back. I guess it would have been, so maybe it was about a year now, uh, with uh, 
guess without going into all the vaguely confidential details, uh, someone who had submitted to a bug bounty that a company had like just put up and had done mm. a really bad job of writing their scope. Uh, and like the, the timeline was really similar to what I'm seeing BitFi doing here, where you know, it seemed like they just really wanted to get their bug bounty out the door, didn't bother talking to legal or waiting for them to come back with like an actual scope. And so just said, yeah, everything's fair game, go for it. And mm -hmm. this person found something that was uh, high priority and, you know, ranked for like top bounty rewards. And rather than just, you know, pay out and be decent about it, the company came back and sort of tried to backpedal their statement with some like scary threatening legal language. And uh, thankfully, that one didn't get that messy. Uh, but there's you know, just a lot of potential there for it to become a really ugly, complicated, expensive legal dispute for you know, both parties where some company has put up a poorly worded bug bounty. And when someone tries to collect... Interesting. Know, yeah. I think that's, that's good advice, though, because it, 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 it's saying you can you can uh roll the dice that this might uh be seen in court as a, a as a they're giving up their rights but you're gonna have to go through that ride to find out and yeah so and, and i think like practically speaking i think that's what that's what keeps this being kind of like a funny legal hypothetical as opposed to an actual actual clusterfuck uh is that yeah the cost of entry to actually fight that out in court is pretty high uh I'm certainly not going to go like DDoS Bitfy's infrastructure and say, well, you owe, you owe me 250k now because they the cost of actually, right? They said it's fair game, no big deal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the the cost of of holding them to that is probably, you know, end of the day, probably as high as the reward. Right, right. Is there uh, is there any specific kinds of cases that you've seen uh, that do have a, a general trend towards them i know you said earlier it's hard to generalize a lot of these cases uh that you probably come across i'm assuming there's probably at least a certain subsection that are almost always people end up getting found guilty or or having to settle in some way versus cases that generally go towards the defendant's uh um is there is there anything to that you can say? Oh yeah, I mean yeah, there's there's definitely patterns there. Um, I think one of the one of the hardest things to uh, I guess appreciate from the outside is you know in the eyes of both judges and juries, hacker hysteria is very real. Um, you know, even the more open open minded, technically minded folks that get called for juries or that serve on the bench. You know, most of the headlines out there, most of the talk out there about hackers and hacking is fear inducing and people react to that. And I, th I think with a with a criminal case, it's it's there's a strong trend towards prosecution in part because you know people are sort of pre-primed with this this concern and then this sort of almost paranoid hysteria about you know, hackers, especially in the wake of the 2016 elections and all the sort of press that's come out since then. Oh, interesting. So you've actually seen uh, an increase in fear, for lack of a better term, since then? 
Yeah, and it's it's one of those tricky things where like I can't I can't cite you to like a case that says having that sort of fear is okay. There isn't one. It's just in practice that's what it looks like on the ground. Is this is the thing people are scared about and don't understand. And you know, just like the witch hunts in the 1600s, you've got the same sort of fear of the unknown coming into play here. When you say that, uh, like when. Like a lot of the defendants who who come through are just uh, like because hacker is an interesting term. Like people think hacker bad hacker, but you know we we know that it's it's the mindset, it's what you're doing, it's you know the, the technical aspects and and all these other kind of things. But would you say that the kind of quote hackers that that become defendant that are defendants are generally just criminals that also happen to you know have some technical skill? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't say so. Um, I think probably some of the most interesting cases have been ones where some someone was acting not so much out of criminal intent, but, you know, out of curiosity. Um, and that goes back to the early days of the CFAA. I mean, uh, the Morris Worm was one of the first prosecutions and convictions under, under that law back in 91, I think. Right, yeah, real early. Yeah, so you've got that. You've got more recent examples, like uh, I think Marcus Hutchins is one of the uh, better examples in, in recent memory of you know someone being pretty aggressively prosecuted for you know, so stuff that I would not define as you know malicious criminal hacking based on everything I've read. Yeah, so... I, not to spend a huge amount of time for a variety of reasons, um, but what's your what's your like quick gut feel on that? Is uh, it, standing by the FBI? Is this uh, them thinking they have more than they have, or is it or is it something that is is unknown completely? Yeah, um, uh, let, let me just. First off, with the caveat of, you know, I, I'm always hesitant to backseat lawyer on an ongoing case because I've, yeah. I've, I've been on those cases and there's like a million things you see on the inside that no one on the outside gets to see until years later, if ever, just because of how discovery works. But, you know, my kind yeah. of like knee-jerk reaction, what this looks like to me from the outside, based on the way yeah. they... I was just going to say, we can steer away from it then. I mean, even... Oh, no, no, I, mean, I, I, I can give you the, the sort of thousand-foot answer. Um, I, I, I think my knee-jerk on it, just based on the way that the government's gone after him, also on the way they arrested him, I think that they thought this was going to be, we throw a bunch of charges at this guy, he pleads out to something, and then we can use him as, you know, a cooperating witness on something, or, you know... They, they, I, I think they had some motive for coercing him into a quick, easy plea deal. And now I, you know, it looks to me like a face saving, saving exercise for DOJ yeah. where that didn't work. He fought back and now they've got to, you know, push back harder to, I don't know, not look weak or yeah. whatever goes on in their heads. Yeah. So we, we would, we mentioned last week, sorry, uh, Dan, you, I think it was you that mentioned last week about, uh, this being potentially, um, setting precedents on like the same sort of uh holding code like with packet storm or like with um 
uh, what are they called now, Millworm Injector, whatever, how they, they have these code repositories of uh, exploits where this could potentially be um, set precedence that holding code becomes the crime, even if you didn't write it. Like, do you think uh, that's a potential? Like, is that something we should be concerned about? Uh, I, I, I honestly, I think the entire, I, I think the entire security research community should be concerned and actively lobbying Marcus's case. Uh, the fact that they're bringing uh, charges under 18 USC 2511-2512 based on uh, quote-unquote devices used to surreptitiously eavesdrop, basically, uh, yeah. in relation to code, you know, that's something that threatens anyone making, you know, that, that renders NMAP illegal, theoretically. Like, that affects the whole community. It's really Yeah, ridiculous. So, so you, you had brought up some other cases, um, Esquiring, that were interesting um, when we had chat before you came on. Um, <clears throat> so you had mentioned specifically, like, um, Laurie Love is one of them, and Carpenter versus the United States. Um, I'm not sure if you want anything. You brought them up, but I wasn't sure if you had anything in particular that you wanted to discuss about them. But I'm interested in your take on, on both of these things. Yeah, um, so Carpenter's interesting. It, it was a, it, it was the sort of first big case on cell site location information, that mm -hmm. to re and certainly the first one to reach the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I was I was following this one pretty closely. I think a lot of the kind of law and technology folks that I know were, um, and was fully prepared for bad news because most of the you know, most of the present to date on. Uh, digital devices in general has been pretty depressing. Um, and the Supreme Court came out and uh, sort of granted uh, their decision for Carpenter in this case. I, I think this is another good example of that uh, leap into conclusions about what it means that we were talking about before, where you know, a lot of the headlines the day after say, oh, well, now they need a warrant for any cell site location data. and. It's not quite that broad reaching. Uh, this case drew some pretty specific lines about like the timelines involved and the volume of location information. And you know, it remains sort of an open question. You know, won't know until the next cases come through about whether this applies as well to shorter periods of time or smaller collections of historical location data, or if it applies to real time location data in the same way. So there's still a lot of open questions there, but it was just a nice, nice bit of good news in a, a sea of bad when it comes to digital privacy. Um, Larry's case is another another one that. Uh, so I, I'm I'm one of his lawyers, uh, so there are, you know, I'm fully biased in this, but it was another one where I think we were all sort of prepared for bad news about extradition and. It was nice to see the UK court recognize just how how outrageously harsh the US law is for uh, computer misuse compared to to Britain's. Um, you know, one thing that we focused on a lot in the public briefing was, you know, for if you look at, uh, for example, like the, you know, good examples are um, if you look at like the Molsec folks who were charged in the UK. You know, you're you're talking. For stuff similar to what to what Larry was accused of, you're talking you know, maybe two years tops, often less. Whereas here, uh, Larry was looking at 
he was upwards of 90 years and that was or 90 or 99 years and that was not even getting to the multiple jurisdictions he was being charged in so yeah i think it's it's if you're looking for bits of sort of pushback on u.s computer crime laws and uh places where there's sort of leverage to to change uh other countries saying no we're not going to send you people to prosecute because your law your laws are too harsh is, is a pretty good lever yeah no it's, it's interesting to see like with people just getting extra trying to get extradited and and like just having to play by the rules of the whole world um, you know, we have like GDPR, which is affecting everybody, and like other sort of like laws that that you know, if you do something somewhere, even if your data is just passing through, it could potentially be, you know, um, under the jurisdiction. So it, it's interesting to see how that sort of plays out you know, on a case by case basis. Absolutely, I think especially with you know, you've had international crime since you know the 1600s and the days of like piracy, but. Mm -hmm. The internet, I, I don't want to get too like techno-utopian about it, but you definitely have some really new and interesting questions being asked about, you know, how much is international, where do those sort of lines of sovereignty begin and end with with things like law enforcement or data privacy. And the GDPR is another good example of, of a sort of new law that presses on that boundary and, and that, that area a bit. Yeah, I think uh, the old Pimp Alex 91, uh, he was spread out quite significantly across the globe, and they they picked him up in Thailand, where uh, Rip. But um, you know, had that have gone, you know, had he had to go to court somewhere, somewhere or multiple places to face different charges, I mean, that would have been a real clusterfuck of uh, what happened, where, who belongs to what, and you know. Yeah, exactly, and then that was um, you know. Thankfully, it sounds like we're not going to have to deal with it in Larry's case in the U.S., but that was another issue there, was he was being charged in three different jurisdictions, and just the question of, you know, who's actually got jurisdiction on what happened when in this whole mess is, it's a, it's a tough question when you're talking about you know, the internet where servers and data are all, are all over the, the world. So how do you think of this, though, these existing laws um, will change, I mean, affect, like, future legislation? Like, what sort of things do you think are, are sort of, like, trending towards um, as far as sort of way that people are now approaching these really, really new subjects like that? Yeah, um, there's, I think, sort of, at, at my most optimistic, I think as we all become, you know, both the sort of technical and non-technical folks out there become more and more reliant on technology and more, more and more aware of the ways that you know, data is used or collected or, or transferred around. You know, I think, I think I'm hopeful that we'll see more things like the GDPR where you're sort of taking tangible steps towards more protection of people's personal data and controls on how that's used or, or misused by, by third parties. Um, on, on my less optimistic side, I think, you know, like I was saying before, hacker hysteria is at an all-time high. Um, yeah. And you know, the flip side of, of increasing awareness and reliance on on technology is, uh, you know, 
that that hysteria is also not going away. So, you know, I, I look at most of the recent amendments proposed to the CFAA um, are things that that threaten to make its reach even more broad and more harsh or, yeah. you know, sort of more damaging and threatening to the security researcher out there. I guess uh, Jack's got a few questions about uh, if you have any views on WikiLeaks posting ICE patrol info on their agents. I mean, is that a... I mean, the WikiLeaks is an ongoing thing. It's a very big legal mess, but um, does, does that come in? Like, I'm not even sure where that would stand. I actually... Uh, what, what did they post about ICE patrol info? I actually hadn't heard about this. Uh, information on their agents. I think there's a link further up in Voiceless Voice. So on the actual agents themselves. Oh, if if you haven't heard about it, then I guess uh, it's it's kind of a bit of a hard time to uh, to get knowledge on it real quick. So okay. we'll move on. I see the article here. Let me take a quick quick scan. Yeah, this but is, this is talking more about like DNC stuff. Um, yeah, the other one that says activist pub or publishes eleven thousand. Oh wait, never mind. That's something completely different. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, there's like it. I feel like the. I don't know. I guess like leaking in general. Uh, it's just like a huge aspect of like everything that is the news now. I mean, most information we're getting is just literally like leaks from somebody like immediately after something happens and. It's interesting to see how that also plays out too, because I mean, there's certain I don't know. Do you see like, how is that sort of used? I guess in in from a legal standpoint, when somebody leaks something about somebody, like can you use? I don't know. It's like I feel like a lot of people just like they'll hear about something that somebody does from a leak or whatever, and then they expect people to just be able to act on it without being able to verify or anything. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about, like, the ability to use leaked information in, like, another case or in yeah. or officially, mm -hmm. you know, it's uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. There's not, like, a nice clean answer to it necessarily. Um, you've certainly got things like uh, the Defending Trade Secrets Act, where if stuff is leaked and you don't necessarily have reason to know that it was... You know, it's it's the, it's the way that leaking like affects confidentiality rules or trade secrets rules. Where if it's out there in public, then it's you know de facto not a trade secret anymore. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily protect the people doing the leaking. That's a whole different area of the law. Yeah. So there's like there's also this sort of thing about whistleblowers as well, which people have been debating. Which is I don't know how you classify it or what constitutes the difference between whistleblowing and leaking um if there is a legal uh, distinction but that's something that i also wanted your opinion on too because we have people that you know i don't know we see so many different things that need to be addressed um whether it be something like you know civil or something just technical and ethically wrong um i don't know how do you see that sort of landscape of whistleblowing and the ability of people to do that now yeah, I, I think I think whistleblowing is one of those terms that gets uh, thrown around with, with not a lot of like semantic consistency because there are whistleblower laws that give specific protections in specific situations, but like those vary a lot by industry, um, 
typically this is something like inside the company or with a specific government agency that handles certain types of whistleblowing. And so, you know, in a like technical legal sense, whistleblowing is very different from what gets used publicly you know, popularly. Um, I don't think there's like an easy, clean legal answer to, you know, the ethical question of whistleblowing or leaking. Um, so I can't like, I, I can't really like read the entrails on what's going to be legally all right or not. Most of the time, if we're talking about like public disclosure of the sort that you know, whistleblowing gets talked about, about by and large, um, you know, there's plenty of laws that make that a very dangerous thing to do. Um, but laws and ethics are very different things. Uh, it may be, you know, thoroughly illegal in a way that I, as a lawyer, cannot say, yeah, you should do that. You should not because it's illegal. And I have to say that. Um, but on an ethical level, yeah, I, I think that's a very different question. Yeah, no, I mean, the, I feel like so much that we see now is a lot of the high profile cases in, in general that are in the news media's sort of sphere. Um, I feel like there's a lot of it is a lot of, of of speculation and sort of like hearsay about what things are law, like what are what are laws, what isn't laws, um, you know. And a lot of it gets mixed up with that what you were saying before, like ethics versus laws, which are two different things. So, yeah, not completely. Yeah, it, it, it's messy because, like, on one hand, we you know, we sort of normatively want our laws to follow ethics and sort of morality on a sort of high concept level but you know the reality is at best they get close on a real good day and other than that they draw pretty bright lines between the two yeah so actually there's another thing that, I, that you had brought up that i wanted you to sort of cover or talk about a little bit um which i wanted to understand more which is the sandvig versus sessions and what was this all about here so this is, I, of like the various CFA cases out there, this is one of the ones I'm most excited about to see kind of where it goes and how it gets mm -hmm. resolved. Uh, this was a lawsuit brought by the ACLU um, on behalf of a number of researchers, Sandvik among them, who I think most of them, if not all of them, were doing really interesting discrimination research in online real estate websites where it's kind of this classic method of, of discrimination research where, you know, in the, in the physical analogy, like old-timey old real-world world examples, you'd submit two applications with you know, certain details changed to suggest a particular, you know, national or ethnic or cultural background. And, you know, done at large, you can see, you know, the patterns of, okay, well, based on the way this large organization is responding, we think there's probably bias of some of some sort. So th these are researchers who were looking into that in online real estate sites where they would use, uh, you know, they make fake profiles basically and submit fake user data to these sites. And yeah. their concern is, well, that is by the terms of service of these sites, not allowed. So we want to know if that's risking a CFAA prosecution or, or violating the CFA in general to do so, because you've got at least three circuit courts in mm -hmm. the country who, you know, three sort of big chunks of the country that say, yep, 
terms of service are enforceable in criminal CFA actions. And you know, that's it's still an open question in a lot of places as well. Um, so they brought a, a lawsuit against um, you know, Jefferson Sessions as you know, in his role as head of DOJ and as a, uh, basically trying to find out, A, does this break the law? And B, if it does, we think there are constitutional issues with that because this is research that, you know, is constitutionally protected. So they, they recently won a motion, or they prevailed over the defendant's motion to dismiss on a number of things. Uh, so it's still really early stage. This is by no means a finished case, but we've got like at least a very strong sig signal from the court saying that they're actually going to consider. Um, I think they, I think they did dismiss the, and again, I'm going off memory here, so apologies if I get the details wrong, but mm -hmm. if I'm remembering right, they did dismiss the unconstitutional as written challenge. They did not dismiss the unconstitutional as applied challenge so the, the difference being as written means like no matter what against anyone this is unconstitutional just the way the text works yeah as applied means like for this specific situation the way mm -hmm. it, in this case could be used or would be used would be constitutional so we will at some point get to see that either settled out or uh litigated in court down in uh i think they're down in dc where are they again Hmm. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's interesting to see the sort of paradoxes, I guess, that come up with with doing research about things, and the fact that now we do have very very comprehensive terms of service for usage, which is also the reason why a lot of people are scared, as far as security research goes, to do certain things or even do disclosure, which is a running theme here. Um, so yeah, it's definitely interesting to see how that can be used against you very specifically in court. Yeah, I think for security researchers, this is a really interesting case because a lot of the same arguments apply to, hey, I'm violating these terms of service, but it's for you know, uh, research purposes or a bug bounty that isn't specific on accepting terms of service violations or something. Yeah. So, yeah, it has the potential to really affect the safety of people you know, technically but harmlessly violating terms of services. And up to now, DOJ's response to the question of, hey, does this, you know, we're concerned about this violating the CFA, their response so far has been, well, our prosecutors would never bother dealing with that or bringing a case about that. But, yeah. you know, I, I just, I don't see how that's a satisfying answer that leaves you, you know, to the whims of whatever mood the prosecutor's in that day. Yeah, so it's still up to, like, if they choose, uh, like, they, they are obviously taking your intent at face value before they choose to proceed, right? It's like so it's up to the discretion. There's a person's discretion before anything proceeds, yeah? Basically, yeah. Right, so you could just get an asshole who's on a bad day and he's like, I'm going to go after you as hard as I can. Right, if, if Johnny Law stubbed his toes this morning and you were the hapless researcher to land on his desk, that's, you know... I, I don't think that that meets the predictability standards that we sort of hope for from the law, where I can go out and say, well, I know this is legal and I know that's illegal, so I'm going to do this thing. You know, if we want yeah. law to be something that guides people's behavior in sort of an overall social good kind of sense, it can't just come down to what mood the prosecutor's in that day. 
So um, with that, like, I mean, if we talk about uh, like patching code and stuff, right, with like multiple contributors, we, we often do like peer review, like you know, scientific journals, peer review, like academia stuff. Um, can you go like, <laughs> I feel like like Johnny Lawmaker is in a bad mood today. Can I have a second opinion? Like, or is it kind of like that? No, now you have to go through the whole process. Uh, th th there's, I mean, I, I have not been. I've, I've not been a federal prosecutor, so I can't speak to the exact details, but there's definitely office bureaucracy. There's, you know, there's sign offs from higher, higher ups and things like that. It's not, it's not literally one person's decision though. In practice, it's uh, a little messier than that. MG, uh, what is the question that you wanted to bring up? Yeah, so we, we were earlier talking about the uh, statute of limitations, how, um, how that actually applies. I think there's a really good example of a very common misconception that exists in you know, the hacker community. Um, I, I was hoping you could maybe elaborate, give a few more examples of common misconceptions that uh, can be very dangerous. Yeah, sure. Um... If a cyber cop, if you ask a cyber cop if they're a cop, they don't have to tell you. Um, <laughs> I, I'd be serious though. I, I, th I think probably the most, the other most common misconception in cybercrime law that I've seen several times now is I, I think there's a lot of sense. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions around what loss and damage means under the CFAA, both both by technical folks and by lawyers. Uh, it's sort of a weird law in a lot of ways. One of those is that it has like very special definitions for both of those terms. And one thing that I see often from the technical crowd is the notion that, well, it's not damage if there were backups or it's not damage if, you know, nothing was permanently deleted. Uh, and I would recommend anyone suffering from that misconception reread the definition of damage under under the CFAA, I think it's ten. Uh, so on the on the definite on damages, would you say that like can can it be like uh, oh you accidentally caused the application to crash and it was down for two hours and that's like two hours of some expensive consultant's pay and that's more than ten thousand dollars? Like is that damages or is that just their costs? Uh, so first off, I've got some worse news for you. Uh, <laughs> the felony threshold is only $5,000, and that hasn't really been updated since the mid-1980s. So uh, what was once sort of a high threshold before you had you know, multi-million dollar information security companies is now a drop in the bucket. Um, so you've got a, a very low threshold to potential felony charges. Uh, the other piece here is, yeah, it, that hypothetical you're talking about, I have literally had that case. Um, someone who was uh, charged with running some like automated security audit tools and just by sheer bad luck happened to uh, hit up against some really old hardware being run by a third party contractor and their their security audit tool ended up crashing this email system. Wow. And you know, when I say crashing, I don't mean like fell apart, wouldn't get back up again. I mean like it was offline for you know, a couple hours. Uh, 
Wow. And, so the uh, incompetence yeah. of the other company doesn't matter. No. Um, oh, what? Yeah. So it was offline for a few hours and they got charged? They got charged with multiple felonies. Uh, and part of that is, you know, the way that the CFA defines damage is it's any impairment to, among other things, the availability of data, a program system information. So, you know, a five minute denial of service attack against, you know, my shitty email server running on like, you know, my old 46 is CFA damage. And if I decide to hire, you know, a like thousand dollar an hour defer contractor to come find out what happened, that's going to be counted against the defendant. That's crazy. So, I mean, you know, you, 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 you will, will comment in funny ways on some stories and, and, funny ways that are also true uh and one of those that sticks out in recent memory is uh it's literally uh, less risky to go smash out the windows of a building than to ddos them and it sounds like that's actually the truth that's actually the case advocating doing either of those but in the grand scheme of things actually doing physical damage to windows or something um would yeah, be create less less risky than DDoSing a site. Yeah, it's it's a line that gets brought up a lot in CFA reform advocacy is just the sheer reality that look going in smashing a bunch of windows of some company is going to risk less serious charges, less prison time, less punishment than hacking like one Windows box of this company. That's uh, crazy. Yeah, it's. Get baseball bats ready. I, I think it's. I think what we're trying to say <laughs> here. <laughs> Make sure. <laughs> Literal hacking. Of course. <laughs> like uh, smash windows. Don't break into windows. Right. Yeah. If, if, you're, if you're interested, line. if you're interested in like a, a good longer read on this, um, there's a, a scholar named Molly Souter who wrote a book. I believe it's called. Uh, Uh, wrote a book called The Coming Swarm, and its mm. uh, subtitle is DDoS Actions, Hacktivism, and Civil Disobedience on the Internet. And it's a it's a really good sort of both both legal focused, but also sort of policy and philosophy look at what digital protest means and some sort of higher concept arguments about why it's just kind of ridiculous in this day and age that we punish that more harshly than anything in the real world. Yeah. I think that if I recall, I, I believe I've heard of that book. It came out of the, uh, what do they call them? The PayPal 15 or 16 or. Uh, yeah, I think the PayPal 14 are mentioned in there. Yeah. 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 Interesting. But yeah. it also covers things like, uh, you know, a lot of like philosophical theories on civil disobedience and kind of runs the whole scope between all that. That's wild stuff. Okay, so um, <clears throat> we're getting towards the end here. And I wanted to bring up one more point of just ask your opinions about uh, the defense distributed thing that we mentioned earlier. Have you had any or wanted to share? Yeah, um, I, I can share my opinions generally on the First Amendment as it relates to code as, as speech. Um, happy yeah. to. Um, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna do 
going to politely decline speaking about defense distributed specifically as we've done some work for them in the past <laughs> and I don't want to like yeah, absolutely that. Um, yeah. but you know I, I think as a legal argument I have a very hard time pushing against the notion of code as speech um, you know it's it's written work that is the product of one or more human minds uh, I, I think it's you know, you've got decades of case law saying, yes, code is, among other things, speech. And, you know, it's, I, I don't think you, I don't think you can assail that notion without putting at risk sort of the entire foundation of the internet or software in general. Um, once you start pulling that out from, from First Amendment protection, the, the scope of what can and can't be legally limited in terms of what can be coded is pretty scary um i think it's you know i have i've as as with many things relating to gun control i think it's i've seen a lot of very emotional reactions from in particular state attorney general's offices on this which i think i think the new york state ag posted something about how you know their whole point was it was crazy that criminals could easily misuse that and you know the truth or falsehood of that is not really relevant. The point is that that is not an argument that answers either the first or second amendment concerns implicated yep. by defense distributed or, or any sort of sharing of dangerous ideas on paper. Uh, that is something that you know we've been protecting since before the founding of this country. And the fact that criminals could misuse it is you know, not really here or there on, on the issue. So I'm, I don't know. I'm I'm hopeful to see some more nuanced responses on the actual legal issues involved. So far, most most of what I've seen, even out of state attorneys general office, attorney general's offices, have been not really not really, really responsive to the legal questions that I find myself asking about it. So if we can jump away from uh, specifically uh, that like that that issue, but go back in time to something that's happened before that maybe you'd be feel more comfortable commenting on. What about things like uh, the Anarchist Cookbook that would, or you know, the Jolly Rogers Cookbook, or any of those things that used to be around um, that told people how to do things that could potentially be used incorrectly, like you know, for crime or whatever. Like, is that a similar scenario? Is that a like? Are we looking at talking about the same thing just all over again? Or I mean. I think legally it's a it's a very similar scenario. Um, you know, we've it's it's not a hard line for for the law to draw between providing the, the information to do something versus actually doing it. And I think I think even before the Anarchist Cookbook, you had a case about this where someone had published the plans to make a nuclear bomb or something like that in like you know the seventies or eighties like zine culture. And it's the same issue where, yeah, if you actually went out and built one, there's all these laws that we already have that kick in to you know, prevent the dangerous creation or, or use of these things. But merely distributing the information is First Amendment speech. Now, maybe I, I think like the one sort of obvious exception would be if I'm publishing that information while also saying, hey, go do like go do this criminal thing with it, please. That's a different situation. But if it's just the mere providing of information, 
I have a hard time seeing that as something we can just accept from First Amendment protections. What at at what point does? Oops, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was actually just going to ask. You said there's a fine line between the two things. So what what does it become if you produce that information and also say and go ahead and do it? Like, what does that actually mean? Uh, so a lot of this comes down to, you know, these sort of note when I see it kind of rulings from the court where the most absurd examples on the, on the extremes are the easiest to discuss, but in reality, it often ends up somewhere closer and somewhere like in the messy middle where, you know, if, if I've put this information out, out there and said very clearly, you know, don't do anything bad with this. It's on you if you do. This is for research purposes only. You know, yeah, none of that is 100% legally set, legally like bulletproof, but it certainly helps. Whereas if I put that information out there and say, yeah, go do crimes, go do all of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's looking a whole lot like uh, I was encouraging or part of the you know impetus for whatever crimes happen because of it. Uh, oh, interesting. So you so can he, actually be linked to a conspiracy charge at that point, then. In some cases, uh, maybe not. Maybe not a conspiracy charge, but. Um, and, but it opens you up for potential issues of. It, it certainly opens, opens you up for potential issues. Um, and then, you know, you've got other situations where the law will look at certain kinds of tests about about the speech. So probably the most well, well sort of discussed example is threatening speech, where, you know, going back to the early 20th or 19th century, you've got cases talking about, you know, where do you draw the line between sort of polemic writing versus actual threats and Eventually, like mm -hmm. in certain situations, the court will look not just at, what, at just at what was written in a bubble, but at the sort of the whole situation, you know, for right. what, you, what you've got now in the U.S. Uh, in certain situations, it's called true threat doctrine, where, you know, if I say I'm going to come kick your ass, that doesn't really move the needle. But if I say that and describe the exact time and location and how I'm going to do it, and then like hop in my truck and drive 100 miles to find you, that probably does qualify. So, so the court doesn't just look at what's said. It's going to look at sort of the entire environment around what's going on. It's interesting. I mean, that sort of applies, I guess, to us sometimes. Like we, we like to have thought experiments when things come up in the news um, about, you know, where it could be used and what it is, like trying to bring real infosec to what we talk about. But we always do try, like, you know, we've got our disclaimer at the start, which I guess from what you're saying doesn't really mean shit. And um, what? <laughs> <laughs> um and and you know we we do discourage people to do cyber crime but we have to look at like we're trying to look at it from a realistic view so i guess this is a good chance for us to say like don't go do crimes after listening you know things we talk about we're doing thought experiments yeah i mean th those disclaimers that uh, it's not that they don't mean shit i i like to use the outright the bear analogy where you know the, the important thing is, is not that it's this like perfectly legal protection, but it means you're not like the slowest runner out of the entire group. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking of. 
I'm thinking just... of on this on this topic. I'm thinking of this recent case where someone had had provided. I was some kind of like keylogger or rat or some sort of like pretty obviously malicious bit of software with like the research purposes only sort of disclaimer, but then have like only sold it on like hacking forums. Right. So that's a good example of like, yeah, the disclaimer is not quite enough if you're, yep. if circumstances suggest otherwise. Yeah. Uh, the other issue that our disclaimer has is it gets copyright struck by uh, our providers. So I think it gets actually cut out of all the episodes anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Nice. So yeah, um, it's actually getting kind of late now, um, but I, I wanted to thank you, Esquiring, for coming and joining us and talking about some really important stuff here. Is there anything that you have um, that you want to just mention, any projects you're working on or anything you want anyone to know before we uh, sign off for the night? Um, I, I guess let me, let me throw two, an announcement and a question out there. Um, first off, I'm going to be at B-Sides and DEF CON in I guess about a week. So if awesome. any of y'all are there, uh, come say hi. I'll probably be posting about like where I'm at. And yeah, that, for, also speaking of, thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Um, thanks for coming on. And the, the, the other thing I'm, I, that's, I've been sort of kicking around is I, I'm, I'm really curious from the like InfoSec and research community. You know, I, I feel like uh, lawyers not having a great rap in the first place. Uh, I feel like, especially in tech, there's a sense of like us as as the no people, as like as the bad news bears, kind of. Um, and I'm really curious. Uh, feel free to message me or DM me on Twitter or uh, send my grandma a PGP email to forward on. Um, <laughs> if there are things that like I can be offering the infosec community that would be more useful um, or more accessible than sort of the formal hire a lawyer thing. Um, I've been in, in my like, in this fantasy world where I have a whole bunch of free time and a whole bunch of money, I've been thinking about doing, uh, have you, if you've seen like the traffic ticket bot, I've been thinking of doing something similar for like a CFAA risk analysis. That's cool. nice. Um, yeah, I mean, accessibility and, the, you know, a lot of people uh, have criticisms sometimes of uh, the lawyers that are on Twitter and engage with the community but uh in my opinion that's like something that needs to happen way more than does uh there's only a handful of you guys that are willing to get in the mix and uh i think it's kind of shitty that there are only a handful of you so yeah i, I, I agree but yeah, I, I, think, sure. I think accessibility is tough um one of my first jobs was in a organization doing sort of access to justice work and I see, it, I see it in the InfoSec community too, you know, the upfront cost for, hey, I need a lawyer to figure this out for me is pretty high. Uh, so I'm, I'm always curious about like, you know, folks have ideas for things that folks on my end of the, of the legal world can be doing to sort of make that more accessible or, or help give people like the information they need to not, you know, get in legal trouble. I'm all for it. All for it. So for a closing note then, I guess, uh, is there, somewhere that you would recommend straight up that you can just uh, like to shill real quick for uh, people who need lawyers in this space? Um, yeah, I mean, come come talk to Torakland Law. We're, we're at torakland.com or uh, 
718-737-7264, or you can shoot me an email. PGP uh, should be up on the key server somewhere. That's great. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on again. This, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Super it was a lot of fun. Yeah, you're really doing the Lord's work out there. So. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I'll yeah. say which, which Lord, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So thanks, everybody, for, for coming and hanging out. Thanks to, uh, or congrats to RQU for solving our puzzle. Thanks to everybody who uh, actually did it. Uh, I didn't realize so many people would be on it. Um, so we'll probably have something either for Sunday, if not Sunday, next Tuesday, when we talk to Dash about poisoning PII um, and what you can do to uh, make your online presence very confusing. So we will uh, see you guys uh, for Sunday. And if you're not, don't see us then. We'll see you next Tuesday. So, and of course, uh, okay. shut the fuck up and get a lawyer. Yes. Okay. <laughs>